All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. Today's guest is Stefan Kisten, a father, firefighter, podcaster, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend. Stefan operates grapplearts.com, beginningbjj.com, and through his online instructionals, videos, DVDs, articles, and newsletters, he's helped tens of thousands of grapplers all over the world improve their Brazilian jiu-jitsu and submission grappling skills. I, in particular, own for his ones on sweeps and subs. I learnt more on these apps, not just technique pointers, but key concepts and movement fixes, than I had in some classes to that point. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and has been training martial arts for over 30 years, where he's achieved belts in, and is a certified trainer in a number of other martial arts. In my opinion, he's been a legend in the BJJ coaching scene, and his instructionals and articles are a must-read for anyone serious about improving their Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And in this interview, we discuss multiple areas, such as his views on BJJ as a martial art, his amazing 1,000-mile bike-canoe trip into the Arctic, which he did completely alone, his kidney transplant, and the importance of working towards your goals. I seriously consider him one of the most interesting people in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and someone you need to follow to take your BJJ to the next level. And now, let's get to the interview. For those people who maybe don't recognise the name, you know, who are maybe not into the jiu-jitsu sphere of life, you know, how would you describe who you are and why you're so well-known? Well, I'm, those are a little bit, they're related, but they're different questions. Who am I? I am a father. I've been doing martial arts for just coming up on 40 years. I've uh, done a ton of outdoor stuff. I'm a firefighter and so I, I, I try to um, balance all those things and often balance them kind of poorly. The reason I'm well known is because of the work I've done in the jiu-jitsu space, in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu space with my site, grapplearts.com, my YouTube channel, and my Instagram, and my podcast, and all those things. And if people do a search for you know my name and YouTube channel, they'll find that very quickly. So I, I, I think, you know, I would love to be known for the writing that I've done on grapplearts, because I've done it ton of writing but usually when people run into me on the street and recognize me they're like dude i've watched all your youtube videos so that's the <laughs> that's the universe sending me a message saying make more youtube videos and although i'm not going to stop writing I, I do enjoy the writing as well well your you know your video series on youtube are phenomenal it's you've got a kind of gift for teaching but you kind of seem to be more of a a teacher side of in a, a jiu-jitsu um, artist more than a, a competitor you know do you I, wish well, I, you... I, did, I did you know I went through the competition phase when I was younger when I had more time uh, you know before I had kids before I you know the all in addition to the grapple art stuff the online 
stuff. I, I also work as a firefighter. So that's a pretty busy schedule. Trying to balance those three mm -hmm. areas. You know. And it, it used to be even more complicated because in addition to being a parent, I was also homeschooling my kids. So you, you combine a full-time job firefighting with a second full-time job, which is doing the, you know, the, the videos and the online writing and the online courses and stuff. Uh, it, you end up with no time at all. So the competition thing has definitely taken a backseat. It, uh, and, and you know, I've also been doing it a long time. And like Indiana Jones says, it's not the years, it's the mileage. And there's a lot of mileage on this body. It, it's, there are a lot of injuries that if, if, if they got much worse, they would begin interfering with my ability to do jiu-jitsu at all. So you do a risk versus reward benefit. I think competition is an amazing thing. Competition, if for no other reason, helps sharpen your training, helps focus your training. If you know that you're going to compete in a month and a half, I guarantee you that your training is going to be more focused, more intense. Uh, there's going to be less screwing around, and you will train harder than you would if you didn't have that competition coming up. So even if you don't like competition, using a competition to focus your training is an effective hack. So that being said, it's been a long time since I competed. I enjoyed it when I did it, and I got better the more I did of it, if for no other reason than dealing with nerves. But, uh, yeah, it's something I just, I don't have the bandwidth for, and, you know, I may not have the, uh, <laughs> the remaining joint integrity for it either. I mean, to be honest, it's, you're, you're the type of person that whenever somebody's starting new, they automatically get recommended to check out your videos. You seem to have this amazing way of breaking down the, you know, the the concepts of jiu-jitsu and making it so easy for a beginner to, to pick up. It's like a kind of, that's your calling. You know, you're passing on the torch of jiu-jitsu and the fundamentals and the concepts to a newbie and, you know, you can't get higher praise than that. I mean, do you... I mean, where does this personality come from? I think I've seen you mention in another interview, you know, you've done a Master's of Science. You know, that's possibly where your analytical kind of approach comes from. But were you like this as a child? You know, what was your upbringing like? Did you have a kind of situation where you kind of learned concepts? Because you've talked about concepts, learning concepts better mm -hmm. than um, learning tactics. Mm -hmm. Have you always been in that kind of mentality when you come I, to like sports? I think so. Trying to find sort of the underlying connecting theme, right? There are some people out there, and I'm not even saying it's wrong, but there are some people out there who are technique collectors. And we'll just talk about this in the context of jiu-jitsu, but it's true in many other areas of life as well. And they're trying to learn this technique. They're trying to learn that technique. And, you know, let's learn 37 different uh, attacks from the guard. Let's learn 18 wrist locks from top position. And that does work for some people. Uh, it's undeniable that it works because that's how a lot of people learn it and that's how a lot of people teach it. Um, I think being exposed to uh, Danny Nosanto and the whole JKD mentality where there's an, at least an attempt to organize things and to, to take a look at the connections in, in Danny Nosanto's case between different martial arts, right? Here's how Muay Thai throws an elbow. Here's how Filipino uh, Kali throws an elbow. Here's how Indonesian Salat throws an elbow. 
Here's how Bondo throws an elbow. And then you can see the underlying similarities and the, the cross-cultural differences in those two things. I think that really helped me. Um, and I really appreciated... My first, my first martial art was judo. But then I quickly strayed from the path and got into kung fu because everybody, when I was growing up, knew that kung fu was much, much deadlier than judo. Right? <laughs> We've been brainwashed <laughs> by countless uh, kung fu movies where... You know, one guy defeats ten guys, and you know, I was young and dumb and a, a teenager. Did you have By the headband? I'm sorry. Did you have the headband for it? Oh, I I went through headbands. I mostly in kung fu. We had the um, you know, the, the black jackets with the frog buttons in the front, right? So we uh, or depending on what school I was training at, we we went traditional dress or t-shirts and kung fu pants and kung fu slippers and. It going from there to a system or an approach where thinking was more welcome, right? Where questioning was inherently part of the process was liberating, because in traditional martial arts you don't ask questions, right? You're lucky if you go and ask one question a month, and you that question is never something like you know, I just don't think this technique would actually work, because you know, best case scenario, you're getting kicked out of the school. Worst case scenario, you're getting a, uh, knuckles to the face. So uh, traditional martial arts often discourage the process of asking questions. And I think martial arts should, in fact, be, you should be allowed to ask questions. I mean, if you're going to say, I don't think this technique will work, there's probably a more polite way to phrase it. And then a less polite way to phrase it, I would suggest in general hmm. that you go with a more polite version, but uh, you, you'll end up in less death matches that way. Um, so as, as in terms of where this looking for underlying connections came from, may, maybe from there. Um, I, I think to some extent the science background helped, but I think there are other ways the science background has interfered with the ability to disseminate information online. If you take a look at my earlier videos or my earlier articles, I was still very much writing from an academic perspective. You know, well, there are four ways to apply this wrist lock, and the first way relies on flexing, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's boring. So I think going to, trying to be a little bit more engaging, trying to write in a way that's more internet-friendly, that, that's been a detraining process. I've had to train myself out of what I was taught in academia. Because when I, I work with a lot of academics just now, I'm and sorry. I, I could, <laughs> well, like I, you know, I can cer I certainly know what you mean about that dry, that the lack of personality in the writing. Because I suppose you kind of got to be, you know, completely. Well, they're trying to be very that, precise. But... They're trying to be mm -hmm. very precise, and you know, I've spent enough time around academics that it. It is what that system approaches, uh, encourages, a very rigorous approach where you're trying to be exactly correct. But it, is it engaging? No. Is it going to survive in a YouTube environment? No. You could be the most correct person, but if nobody's listening to you, then what's your message? You know, how effective is your actual message? I'd rather be you know, more or less correct in what I say and have people listen and hopefully get off their asses and go train or go start jujitsu or continue or not give up jujitsu or go do something else and push themselves in some way 
and be 100% academically correct about, well, Stefan, when you say cardio, that's not actually correct because, uh, in fact, you were doing anaerobic training and not aerobic training, like blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter, right? Call it cardio and we're good. Yeah, it's that kind of, you know, the pick on like such small things and you're like, well, yeah, but, you know, what's the overall message? Exactly. I mean, what, what, what's your take then towards jiu-jitsu compared to other martial arts? What was it about when, you know, because you've, you're a black belt in a couple of different martial arts, you know, mm-hmm. you've done a lot of cross training and I've noticed a lot of like the exceptional performers like yourself have done cross training or have a history of variety of sports when they were younger what was it about jiu-jitsu that kind of made you start leaning towards that wave what was it about it initially that mm-hmm. kind of inspired you to, oh, to get drawn initially 100 percent, it was the undeniable effectiveness of it in a fight either a consensual fight ian do you want to fight yes Stefan, i want to fight okay let's fight right a consensual sparring match or or fight or or you know essentially a duel or a street fight type situation and that was proven at least to me by a couple of things number one it was the early gracie in action videos that came out before the ufc and it's just old footage of essentially a bunch of challenge matches that the gracies had and time after time after time after time you'd have the capoeira guy do his jump spinning flicky kick stuff and then get tackled and it goes to the ground and the capoeira guy would have no idea what to do or some kung fu guy there doing his fancy stuff waving his arms around then charge tackle or charge clinch go to the ground and lose um some karate guy would stand there throw his punches throw his kicks and the jiu-jitsu guy would close the distance either shoot a takedown go to the clinch they'd fall over and the, the guy would win. So I think it's a little bit less accurate now, but when you're comparing sort of traditional martial arts where people didn't cross-train, the person who doesn't have a background on the ground is at a humongous disadvantage. Like, not all fights go to the ground, but most do. Not all fights start on the ground. It's true, but you end up there pretty often, and especially from a... You know, a for women's self-defense aspect, not most rapes, like most rapes and most assaults end up on the ground. Um, So the undeniable effectiveness of grappling in a combative sense was the thing that drew me to it first. At a larger level, it was also the testability of it, right? Coming from a background in both traditional martial arts and more modern martial arts, but you throw a punch and then I'm going to do technique number three. I'm going to block here. I'm going to block here. I'm going to hit you here. I'm going to kick you in the leg. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to use this arm lock to break your arm. And then I'm going to finish you off with a hammer fist to the solar plexus or whatever. That's all well and good. But at the back of your mind, you're always going, well, is this actually going to work? Is there a way that it's too deadly to test because you're not going to let me hammer fist you in the balls if we're really sparring and the funny thing is the techniques that we were shown the ones that we could spar they very rarely came out in sparring basically if you put gloves on people and let them hit each other for real it very quickly devolves to look like sloppy boxing or sloppy kickboxing so that the testability of jiu-jitsu where 
you know, I think I've got a better way to open the guard. I think I've got a better way to escape the armbar. We can test it at nearly full resistance. You can really try to keep your guard closed while I really try to stand up and break your guard open. And we'll have an answer. You know, after 10 minutes of trying, and if I go with a couple different people, I'll have feedback. Again, this is the second time I've used this phrase. I'm not actually uh, a new age flake, but you'll have feedback from the universe as to whether your brilliant idea is, is going to work or not. So that's really appealing because even if the truth is something you don't want to know, it's better to know the truth, right? If, if you, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. If, if you're driving a car and you know for a fact that the seatbelt and the airbags that you're relying on to keep you safe don't work, if you know the truth, that the seatbelt's broken and the airbag's deactivated, you're going to drive differently. You're going to, knowing the truth, you're going to take actions. Whereas if you just drive as if you're invulnerable, then you're much more likely to, to be in an accident and really suffer from that. So even if the truth is something that you don't like, it's better to know the truth. And I think jujitsu provides that very, very quickly with reasonably low risk. Kickboxing also provides that. Boxing also provides that. If you think you've got this great Lomachenko-style feint to get behind me and land a combination, that's great, and we can go test it, and we can find out if that works, but the collateral damage of training boxing and kickboxing is things like concussions, things like chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, things like brain damage and early-onset Alzheimer's and very bad things you know they can they can replace they can repair most joints in the body to some extent they can't do much about your brain so i think there are other martial arts that offer feedback and ways to test but i think in general jiu-jitsu is a reasonably safe way to train at almost full power and have be reasonably safe in the process because that's the thing the santa is everybody's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Yes. And jiu-jitsu is one of those that lets you go almost full force and intensity. But well, that was my come away with that, wasn't it? Ah. And I mean, that's what I liked about it is like the it allows you to actually mimic a fight but controlled enough. You know, it lets you get into that sort of primal identity, that kind of Outlook, that psychological outlook and feel it being the moment and all that kind of stuff and diced it with death almost, you know, in your head. But you're always in a safe environment, a controlled environment with a way out to stop it and stuff. And Yeah, it's called tapping yeah. out. <laughs> Which I mean, is not to say... That's... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, do you think that's what attracts a lot of guys to it? It's that kind of... Because we don't have that rituals anymore to become men because we don't have our own our major wars anymore because we don't have the like the ch- you know the challenges our grandfathers and stuff had you know we we need a kind of a fight almost we need a, a challenge a deadly opponent to kind of f- have feel connected to the world or to feel masculine even I've definitely riffed on this topic before and I think for a certain personality type 
it's 100% correct. Uh, whether you, you know, I, I believe in the idea of creating challenges for yourself. Now, I, I mean, obviously I'm biased towards jiu-jitsu, but it doesn't really matter. If your goal is to go and run a 10K every week for a year, right? That is setting a challenge for yourself. And there is, it's going to be reasonably difficult, and there is a chance of failure. You could get injured. You could decide that you'd rather uh, Netflix binge and eat Doritos on the couch because that is, in the moment, more fun than trying to you know, breathe when your lungs are burning, when you're running and the weather's <laughs> cold. Right? That, that, it, Sounds it, like it, a normal training session for me. Yeah. I mean, eventually that becomes, you, you ta- start taking a grim pleasure in that, but initially it's quite difficult. So it's a self-imposed challenge. Um, going and mastering jujitsu is a self-imposed challenge. And there is, you know, I, I, I thought about this in the context of rites of passage, right? His, as you kind of alluded to historically was a very different time. Historically, there would be a time when a boy became a man, you know, I don't know when you went on your first raid or when you crossed the equator with the British Navy, there was a ceremony or if you were a young Spartan boy, you'd be kicked out of the community and hunted. You know, every, every or if you were a Native American, I mean, you can't lump all Native Americans together because there were hundreds of different tribes with hundreds of different procedures, but at least some of them had some kind of vision quest moment when you would leave the tribe and you'd be out there on your mountaintop or in your cave and you're left alone. It's inherently a bit more of a dangerous situation. You don't have the the tribe to back you up. So there is a there is danger and there's a chance of failure. And when you come back, you're different. And we don't, for the most part, have this in Western society very much. I think people who join the army might have that. Uh, I have not been in the army, but I've gone and created that for myself when I was younger, uh, both through jiu-jitsu and through uh, you know, really extensive solo canoe trips. Um, I think women, historically, probably their rite of passage was giving birth. And I, I'm not an anthropologist. I don't know. This is just me speculating wildly. But, you know, by the time that most men were going through this rite of passage, whether it be um, some kind of horrific African adult circumcision ritual where you weren't allowed to flinch or you'd be kicked out of the tribe, women were going through and having, you know, giving birth to their first kid, which, you know, would probably function as the same thing. It's difficult. It's painful. It could fail. You could die. And afterwards, you're not the same as you were before. So I think people seek out things like jujitsu because it does, as you pointed out, get to that primal. It's very primal, right? If you and I are wrestling, even if we're wrestling, you know, lightly and having fun and not every match is a death match and not every match, well, no match you're really trying to break my arm, except maybe if we were in competition. But your body doesn't know that, your mind doesn't know that, and your ego doesn't know that. It's like, no friggin' way am I going to let Ian do an arm drag and take my back a second time this match. That's just not going to happen. And so, so we get into this, and what's more primal than wrestling? You know, every culture has a wrestling type of martial art. Uh, 
What do little kids do when they get together to play? They end up wrestling on the floor. What do adults do when they're sufficiently drunk? You know, especially a drunk, you know, adult males at a barbecue, they probably end up wrestling or shoving or jostling or, um, it's just such a primal way of, you know, feeling your, feeling your oats and, uh, essentially it's a dominance game, I guess, right? A, a hierarchical game that you're trying to figure out, well, he's better than I am than this, but I'm better than this guy. It, it's a very, very primal thing. And so I, I do think because it's difficult, because it can be painful, because you can fail, it does meet all those criteria for a, a meaningful, um, I guess, substitute for war, <laughs> a meaningful substitute for, um, getting circumcised as an adult without anesthesia. I, I would rather do jujitsu than go through that. Well, I mean, this is why I find you, like, you know, one of the most interesting people in jujitsu. Everybody else I, I would find would be talking about arm locks and, you know, oh, I'm doing this to compete, and maybe they talk about a bit of psychology on that, but, you know, you kind of go on a much deeper level. You, you know, you've got such a warm and friendly way of doing it, and you, but you really kind of go into... A very deep philosophical approach, a very analytical, and that's sort of the real reasons behind a lot of the ways. And I, I think that's why it, it draws a lot of people in. I mean, would you say, in the sense that jujitsu saved your life? You know, during the time you were going through the transplant, the, the you know your recent trip, that sort of thing. Was your use of martial arts? Do you think that benefited you? That kind of helped you during that difficult time in your life okay so what you're referring to here is the kidney transplant that i went through about four years ago correct mm -hmm. okay so for people who don't know i was born with a kidney condition that gradually <laughs> if you want to get technical about it your kidney is made up of a whole bunch of little filters um thousands of little filters and it filters your blood and unfortunately in my case each you know occasional filter decided to turn into a big balloon instead. So instead of having my kidneys weigh about one pound, by the end they weighed about 10 pounds and we're down to about 12% function. So that, I would have died, right? In a previous era, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or even if I had the misfortune of being born in not as developed a country as Canada or somewhere else in Europe or in the United States if I had health insurance, I'd be dead. So, first and foremost, it's medical science that saved my life. Now you're yeah, asking. My mom had, yeah. Well, my mom had a similar thing. She had um, liver severe liver liver damage when the uh, doctor gave her out of date medication. Oh no! And when I when I listened to your, you know your your amazing podcast, you're on like the on what you went through. It is breathtaking to see. The, you know, the items you went through and the strength that you had from it. It was, it was a, a phenomenal video that, I mean. Yeah, so, but the, but I, the martial arts, to get to your question, the martial arts training for sure helped. If nothing else, um, to be stoic about the whole thing and not to, and to try and remain rational, right? Like you're going in for surgery. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. You're either going to come out alive or dead. And then the transplant's either going to work or it's not going to work. And it, it's a decision tree, right? If, if I'm dead, I don't have to worry about it. If I'm alive, well, what are the things I need to worry about? 
Um, to what extent are this, is it going to be functional effort? But some of this is in your control, but a lot of it isn't. A lot of it really is just rolling the cosmic dice, trusting your surgeon, hoping that there's nothing weird medically going on. But there are some things you can control, right? You can go into it in as good a shape as you can. There's very, very few medical conditions where being in worse shape helps out the outcome of any subsequent surgery, right? And so training jiu-jitsu and then doing other kinds of conditioning as I could as my kidney function kept on dropping was incredibly helpful because although I was on death's door kidney-wise, I wasn't as terribly out of shape as some of the other people at that same kidney function level. Um, also, I think I, I was reasonably calm about the whole thing. And that just came, a friend of mine, Brandon Mullins, I've done a few instructionals with him, expresses it well. If you're caught in the bottom of mount, so mount is one of the worst positions you can be caught in in jiu-jitsu, it opens you up to tons of submissions in a fight, the guy can pound your face in, that's why it's rewarded. If we're in a jiu-jitsu match, you can't hit me, but if you get mount on me, you've scored a ton of points, it's going to be hard for me to come back from that. So if you're caught on the bottom of mount, you know what you need to do. There are you know, some techniques that you can use to get out. They may or may not work. The guy may or may not be able to counter your techniques. You're in a really bad position. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to try. You know what you need to do. You need to work to escape mount. Will it work? Will it not work? You don't know. But the one thing that you know for sure is that by not doing anything, it's not going to get better. Uh, in the context of paddling, right? I did that big solo canoe trip this summer. My mantra was the damn boat's not going to paddle itself, right? So any chance I got, get out on the water, and if it's if I'm paddling into a headwind and you're only making a little bit of distance that day, well, it's still more distance than you would have made otherwise. I'm trying to be stoic about it. So did martial arts save my life? Hard to say. Perhaps it helped me with remaining healthier up until the point of the transplant. I think it mostly helped with the mental aspect of the um, not freaking out, trying to make plans, trying to come up with a coherent response to the situation. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be probably this much crippled coming back from this. What's my recovery plan? Do I have all the systems in place? I mean, before I went under, under the knife there, I had about, I forget what it was, maybe four months worth of YouTube videos already filmed that came out. Because at the time, I didn't, you know, I, I was very, very private about that. I didn't share, after the fact, now that I've survived, I don't mind talking about any aspect of that. At the time, though, I was like, well, first I'm going to survive this, and then I'll talk about it. So, so it really helped with maybe the stoicism going into it. I mean, that's, that's why I kind of, it's difficult because I have hundreds of questions on the transplant mm. situation. I have hundreds of questions on the trips. I have hundreds of questions on grapple arts and building your brand and hundreds of questions about jiu-jitsu. And that's why I'm so keen to have you on, that there's so many... We'll just careen wildly between questions. They don't need to make any <laughs> sense. And if people don't it like was, it, they can get all their money back. It, it was hard to kind of find a, a segue there because I'm so interested in your approach to jiu-jitsu 
but I also wanted to talk about the transplant situation. You know, I'd already thought, oh, this is at least three podcasts worth. I mean, that's why I found like the the videos you put out are phenomenal. Like you go into such a deep level, you're very vulnerable. You open up about it. Were they difficult to make? You know, was it was it actually appeasing to do these kind of videos? To, did it help you? My main thought in-, in making the videos and podcasts I did about the going through the transplant process and sort of the coming back from that was to try and help somebody else. Because certainly I've, I've met enough people going through similar things who are just completely, absolutely overwhelmed. It, it could even be surviving cancer or um, you know, trying to deal with a family member who's going through something terrible. It can seem totally overwhelming. And I thought that... Uh, because I, I started talking about the transplant as I was planning this Arctic trip. So the two are not connect, are not disconnected. They're very much connected. And in a way, being able to pull off a thousand miles, so 1,600 kilometers in the Arctic, where there was almost as much upriver as downriver, completely isolated from most of it, was kind of a like, hey, I'm bucking back, right? Like I, it if I can do this after a transplant and if I can get back on the mats and do jujitsu after a transplant, then there's hope for other people too. Um, you know, maybe I'm more functional than some and less functional than others. The, uh, <laughs> it's funny when I was going through the transplant, I, I don't follow rugby at all, but a rugby friend of mine was trying to cheer me up. Oh dude, you're, you need a kidney transplant. There was this famous rugby player, and I forget his name. I'm sure half your listeners will go, it was so-and-so, who had to have a transplant. He had a kidney transplant, even got back to playing rugby. I mean, he died, but <laughs> he had to have a transplant too. I'm like, oh, thanks thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> thanks for telling me about this guy who had a transplant who then tried to play rugby again and then died. Um, yeah. What are friends for? Uh, it's, yeah. I think it was uh, John, uh, John Olumu. That sounds right. A New, a yeah. New Zealand guy. That sounds uh, right. I mean that was the, um, I think that was the first one for a while that people kind of, it, it really highlighted it. Yeah, you know, like in the UK, we tend to, you know, like when you're in high school and that, you tend to get to know about like organ donation and things like that. And what I mean, that's the 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 great thing about your video was that you're promoting the need for organ donation. You're mm-hmm. you're highlighting, you're giving strength back to people that they can do it, that mm-hmm. it's not the end of the world for them, that you can get through it. It may be a dark place now, but there is, you know, there is that place that they can go from there. And, you know, you're going to help, like, heaps of people through it. But did, do you think that self-reflection, did that give you a kind of, a bit of closure on that issue did it help you see it differently you know during that time compared to now do you see it differently do you like learn from it in a different way or i'm just so incredibly glad that i'm more or less functional now it's it's and I, i i'm functional because my brother gave me a kidney so i am like eternally indebted and extremely grateful my brother. I mean, let me let me take this moment. I'm going to make a pitch, but it's not going to be the usual pitch that people make on a podcast. Uh, I don't know what the situation is in UK, and I don't know what your demographic is. I should know this, but I don't. Um, in Canada, anyway, 
and in most American states, the organ donation process is opt-in. So you go, usually you go, you get driver's license and there's a little box that you can check saying, yes, I, I get permission for my organs to be used if I die. And then if you die, I hope you don't, but if you die, then they go to your family and they go, hey, so-and-so checked off this box and it's still okay if we harvest his organs. And then hopefully the family says yes. And I can tell you, because my I had a I've had a couple brothers die actually, but one of my brothers died in a horrific motorcycle accident, basically right in front of my parents' eyes. And so that this was obviously crushing for them. But the fact that his organs, for sure his heart, and I think his liver as well, ended up in other people and helped save their lives, really helped my parents. So if you're worried about, you know, what if I die, how, you know, when I give away my organs, I can guarantee you that well, in most cases, it'll really help the survivors because it'll help them make sense of it. Yes, Jimmy died, but Jimmy's death helped two other people, three other people survive. And that's much better than Jimmy's dead. End of story. So what I was doing and promoting actively for a while and haven't for a while, but it's still 100% open offer, is that if people email me proof that they're an organ donor in whatever city, province, country they're in, that they've gone and signed up with the paperwork. And so I don't need your whole driver's license. I don't want to know where you live. You can black that part out. And black out your driver's license and send me a picture of yourself and the little box that's checked saying so-and-so is an organ donor. If you email that to support at grapplearts.com, I'll give you any one of my instructionals for free. So some of those are a couple hundred bucks. So if you're even peripherally interested in jiu-jitsu or martial arts, that's a really good offer, right? You're doing the right thing. If you were to die, you'd be helping your family and you get some jiu-jitsu in the meantime, which is going to make you less likely to die. So that that's an offer that I haven't, you know, I, I was pretty vocal about that a couple months ago, and we just got hammered with requests. And we were doing nothing else other than processing these requests. This is the first time that I'm remaking that offer. And it's, it's, it's a no-brainer, right? You, you'll improve your jiu-jitsu, or you'll learn some jiu-jitsu, you'll help somebody else, and you'll help your family. Because that's something I remember we always said, you know, when we were in your school, was that you can't take it with you and the thought of like being able to change somebody's life you know to give somebody a second chance or to save somebody and i've always said you know they can take anything they want from me as long as it's not pickled or buggered in some way (laughs) you know they can have it for sure for sure like and and you can say you know is this is this for transplant or is this for research right If, if um i think research probably gives them a little bit more latitude to you know pickle your pecker and stick it in a jar and <laughs> people come by and comment, have medical students come by and comment out. But it, if you're just talking straight donation or transplant, like that, that's fine. And strangely, making this offer months ago, a whole bunch of people came and said, well, yeah, but what about like, is an ambulance or a hospital once they see that I'm a donor, are they going to take as good care of me? It's like, 1,000% yes. You know, I, I work as a firefighter. We go to tons of medical calls. We work with ambulance people all the time. Never once in 20 years of doing that, 21 years of doing that, have we ever taken a look at organ donor status 
before deciding whether or not to take care of you or not take care of you. It's just so totally not an issue. I mean, that's the bit that scares me is, you know, these like people in America who are going, oh, socialized medicine, no, it's complete nonsense. We have the National Health Service in the UK. It might be, you know, a bit crazy in the waiting list for some operations and stuff, but you can walk in and get seen by a doctor. You can get the x-rays for free. You're not going to go into, like, thousands and thousands of pounds debt. Uh, you know, it's we it comes out of the taxis. We all pay into it, and we all use it as we need it. It helps save lives. And I that scares me to think, like, some people are sitting waiting for treatment. They can't get it because they don't have insurance in America or somewhere like that. It's, in, you know, it's insane. Much? And I, I'm, I'm on a fair number of podcasts, and so this topic of uh, transplants and medical systems comes up semi-regularly as I am a guest on other people's podcasts and mm. I, I, I find it really hard not to give a little rant about so-called socialized medicine because of course we have that in Canada as well and yes 100% there are problems with it percentage of Canadians who would prefer to abandon this system in exchange for a more privatized system I'd say is like 10% maybe 15 and they're only the rich people or the people who are delusional about their own state of health, because it can all go for a giant crap instantaneously. Hey, you're 30 years old, and guess what? You've got cancer, and if you pay for this yourself, it's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you're going to carry this debt with you for the rest of your life. I mean, I had, I mean, I paid my taxes, so that is ultimately how this got paid for. Um, but in the moment, in the heat of the moment, when I was less able to work than I ever was, I think I paid a couple hundred dollars of parking fees because I had to go regularly to the hospital and the clinic to get checked up on. That's not free parking. So I was paying, I think, $18 a day for parking on the days that I had to go there. And that's it. You know, I'm, I'm totally happy to pay that parking fee <laughs> in exchange for not coming out with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And people have done some pretty convincing analyses to say that it's actually a more efficient dollar spent um, you actually you actually get more medical care in a socialized medicine context than you do which is not the story that's that's promulgated by um, a lot of the healthcare providers in the states I, I don't I remember listening to a fairly convincing argument about that by I want to say Sam Harris maybe it was Dan Carlin I think it was Dan Carlin actually um, and he'd gone and looked at all the numbers and uh, fortunately, it's not something I need to deal with personally on a regular basis, but I just know too many terrible stories of people who've had injuries that I've had from jiu-jitsu or from judo, and they're like, yeah, I just don't have any health care right now, so and I'm like, this injury, if left untreated, just gets worse. A Liz Frank fracture dislocation of the foot, for example, those don't typically get better, and yet this person's like, I've only got three more months at my job till I get health care, I'll just, you know, I'll just try and stumble on through till then. We've gone down a pretty major rabbit hole, but uh, you're, I'm uh, going to find no disagreement from me on that topic. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. 
The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Well, I mean, this is what I was meaning, like, that literally every, like, avenue that I wanted to chat to you, there was about three hours worth of material there. I mean, the when you came out of it, out of the transplant, you know, you um, how did your sort of outlook on life change? Did you have a stronger relationship with your brother? Um, you know, were you more sort of emotional about life and not wanting to waste a minute? Were you, or were you looking to start stop and savor the moments more? You know, what was? How did you change as a person? Do you think after the transplant? Well, I've had a fair number of brushes with death, not necessarily my own death, but you know, I've, I've I have. Five brothers and a half sister. Two of those brothers are dead. So they 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 serve as you know this idea of a memento mori. Remember that you're mortal. Remember that you're going to die. It can happen to young people that you're related to. I've watched you know, a grandparent and a parent die in front of my eyes. Um, again, as a firefighter, we go to a fair amount of death and carnage whether it's a motor vehicle accident or a CPR call that doesn't work. So I, I think these are really useful things. If you witness somebody dying, especially if it's a family member, but, but really anybody, but especially if it's a family member, they are giving you a gift. And they're giving you a gift of reminding you that life is short and that you're going to die. So I think I already had that firmly embedded by the time the transplant came around. Certainly, I was incredibly grateful. And um, out in the Arctic this summer, and getting back to the mats, it's like, oh my god, I'm so happy that I can do jujitsu again. I'm so happy that despite everything I've been through, I can be out here, you know, even if it's a shitty, shitty portage, and the black flies are awful, and they're, you know, leaving bloody marks all over my body I've chosen this and it, it beats the alternative of being dead or being alive and never having lived because I'm living right now I think I had this pretty firmly established though prior to the fact and I, I think that idea of somebody close to you dying being a gift is a really interesting way to reframe what's undoubtedly a terrible situation right? I mean not very many people watch a parent die and go, that's great. Maybe if they've been suffering for a very long time, they, they go, you know, it's better that they pass away. It doesn't, still, still doesn't make it easy. And we, we talked a little bit about how society used to be. Most people used to die at home. And you'd have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, typically. Families were much larger. A lot of those kids never made it into adulthood. So you would have had brothers and sisters die. You would have seen grandparents and uncles and aunts die. You would have seen, um, you know, things got really bad and the Black Plague came through your village. There'd be bodies all over the place. There would be plenty of reminders that you're mortal. Whereas now, grandma gets sick, grandma goes to the hospital. Next time you see grandma, it's in the funeral home. That kind of insulates you a little bit from the, uh, the reality that life is short. You're going to die too. And bloody make the best of it. And that's probably not by Netflix binging. And I don't know what it is for you, but or for any specific person, but you know, 
probably, if not by watching yet another episode of Netflix or um, you know, spending the entire weekend stoned out of your mind. Because that was the thing, I had three grandparents die of like, cancer in the same sort of like, um, crossover year. Oh my God, in one and, in one, the span of one of 365 days? From like, sorry, like April to sort of April. Um, you know, one had varian, one had um, like sort of hardcore dementia um, and a stroke uh, about skin cancer and um, one had bowel cancer. You know, I know what you mean. It's that feeling of dementia you're completely helpless. Dementia out of me. Dementia is, I think, the scariest, the scariest illness. I, I just have this vision. When my mum was dying, she was in the hospital before we brought her home to die. Uh, I'd go in the evenings. And in the evenings, they'd bring this guy out who had severe advanced dementia. And they'd have to chain him to a hospital bed. And there was nowhere else to put him in the evenings. I, I don't know if they were cleaning his room, but they'd leave him in the hallway. And he'd be there begging and pleading. Like, please. Just let me go. They've they've chained me down. They've they've chained. I I, I got to get out of here. They they're they're keeping me here. And he, he, I don't know what his what he was imagining was happening, but it was, man. If this ever happens to me, please walk up to me. Please, I'm begging you and put a bullet in my head, because I'll thank you <laughs> from the next world. I will thank you. That's the scariest uh, way to well, go. Well, happened to um, to my grandpa, and he was such a strong, like mentally amazing guy, and when I remember seeing it happen, you know, slowly, and then I, when my gran um, had the, the start, it was just kind of out of nowhere, and I can remember sitting there, and it did give me that kind of jolt of, oh my God, you know, this life is short. Nothing stays the same. I think I was 22 when I went to my first funeral, and mm-hmm. I had a friend I worked with who'd um, buried both his parents by the time he was 15, you know, I think that's the thing, like you're saying, is we don't always get that kind of awakening, that kind of reminder mm-hmm. that life is fleeting, you know, because we can order a date online, you can order food to your door, you can order a, a taxi to the bar and then a taxi home, you know, you don't need to actually do anything, we don't have our challenges. I mean, do you think that's why you did your trip? Was it your kind of, your pilgrimage, your ritual, your, your kind of reminder that you were alive after the transplant? definitely a strong element of that. I mean, to be fair, I'd been looking at that region of Canada. Uh, I don't know how well your listeners would know Canada, but there's a great big, imagine it, a giant square with a great big divot taken out of the top, and that's Hudson Bay, right? So that's connects to the Arctic Ocean. It's salt water. Um, <laughs> like many places in Canada, it's named after a Brit who came over and then died. So that would be Henry Hudson would have explored that bay for the trade i believe it's gigantic and so if you go just west of there there's an area known as the barren lands where there's you know no roads for thousands of kilometers um it's tundra it's arctic tundra this is where the inuit used to you know build their igloos and live out in the land and chase caribou and there was an old route heading north through that area that i've been aware of for 25 years but there were other trips to do, and then life got busy, and it's it's tough to to take you know seven weeks off from life in the middle of the summer. You know, it's a uh, especially once you have kids. Hey, kids, I'll see you in the fall. Bye. <laughs> uh, hey, ex-wife, uh, you know I'm sorry I divorced you. Do you mind taking the kids for the whole entire summer so I can go off and do this? 
thing by myself. So I was pretty verbal about, you know, the debt that I owe to people. Yes, I did this trip by myself, but it still relied on other people. It relied, first and foremost, on my ex-wife to take the kids. And I'm really grateful to her. And it took a lot of work to build up to that relationship. We're not in a relationship, but we have a relationship where that was even a possibility. So this is my thing to anybody who's divorced. You know, treat your ex-wife as nice as you possibly can, even if you don't feel like it, because you, know, you never know when you need to want to need her help to pull off that trip of a lifetime, whatever that is for you. If you want to go visit the pyramids or you want to, I don't know, cycle around France or go hang out in Fiji for a month, you'll need somebody's help to do that. Um, so yeah, I had been looking at this area, but then having survived this thing, it really brought it home. Like, you know, dude, you're 50 years old, because I'm 50, and you can do, you're physically in the shape that you can do this now, and who knows what the future brings, right? I, I hope everything goes fine until I'm 185. Odds are against that. So now's the time to do it. So if I can seize the day at this point, after waiting for 25 years and building the relationships I needed for 25 years and figuring out how to get time away from the fire department for, you know, that took a lot of setting up too. The, the logistics of something like that are immense and the stars really did have to align. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm a huge fan of do it now. Right? If, if, if there's an opportunity to do something, you're usually better off to go and experience it, to taste it, to try it, than spend tons of time debating it and analyzing it from every angle. But sometimes the really big goals, they, they do just take time. There's a, a very, very large number of smaller steps you need to pull off. But for sure, the wanting to sort of prove to myself, if nobody else, that I could still do this and that I, and I guess proving to other people that Yes, just because you've had something as major as an organ transplant, that it's not the end of your life, right? You can go on and lead, do amazing things, whatever that amazing thing is for you. So I mean, what would you want people to remember from this? I mean, the, I was already thinking just now, I, I want to talk to you just for an hour on the trip and sure. talk to you an hour for the, you know, the transplant and really get home mm -hmm. and like inspire people from it. Cause you keep doing amazing things. You, you know, you keep just grabbing life by the horns and, you know, you've trained with some amazing people. I've got questions about how your, your own jujitsu has evolved from mm -hmm. working with them, but how, what, what has changed for you? You know, God, what, God help me. I think I'm going to quote Tony Robbins. Uh, <laughs> oh think, dear, here, here we go. <laughs> I think it's a Tony Robbins quote. I'm going to attribute it to him anyway. That most people underestimate, overestimate what they can do in a year, and underestimate what they can do in ten years. Most people overestimate what they can pull off in a year, and underestimate what they can do in ten years. So a lot of these things are the results of decades of work, right? Yes, I've gone and trained with some amazing people but it's also taken decades to set up the infrastructure to do that. It's chipping away at the same problem again and again and again and again and again. And uh, 
trying to make small incremental improvements. And if you're trying to make small incremental improvements in something day after day after day after day, they begin to add up and they begin to work synergistically together and exponentially together. And you end up with a much bigger um, body of work or a much bigger accomplishment than any of the tiny little steps would indicate. So, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I'm not so sure that I'm doing amazing things. I'm trying to move towards my goals a little, you know, the major goals a little bit every day. And then every once in a while, I manage to pull off a coup. I manage to do an instructional video with a really big name in jiu-jitsu. Right? I, I, I did an instruction with Fabio Gergel on pressure passing, on heavy, heavy pressure-based guard passing. A phenomenal series. Well, thank you. Thank you. But that's based off of building up a YouTube channel over years, right? I think I started YouTube in 2006. So then when I go in 2017 or 18 and I say, you know, dear Mr. Gergel, can we shoot a couple videos for my YouTube channel? It's now building on all the work that I've done for 15 years. So what is it the best time to plant a, to dig a well is 10 years ago <laughs> before you needed it. The second best time is right now. Um, the, the, the canoeing, the, the trip, there's, yes, there's a fitness component to something like that, but I'd say the technical and logistical aspects of it are much more important. Knowing how to tie a rope to your boat so it's not going to come off when you're pulling that boat up a rapid. How to light a fire when it's been raining for three days. How to pitch a tent when it's uh, there isn't a tree in sight and the wind's going 50 kilometers an hour. Not to mention all the whitewater techniques. All of those things were learned incrementally. Right, That's one piece at a time. Logistically, uh, figuring out how much fuel you're going to need how many liters of fuel do you carry for a 50-day trip when you're planning on one hot meal a day? You know, that that's a logistical issue. How do I figure out how long this is going to take? That's based on experience. All these things, all these bigger achievements are, you know, are based on slogging away in the trenches, making incremental improvements to small little things day after day. And, and finding, you know, in the case of, um, I mean, the whitewater is an interesting thing because it kind of brings us back to where we started. If I was out, well, when I was out on the Fle Louisa, it's a giant river. It's in the Arctic. There's nobody within hundred, well, several hundred kilometers in any direction. You're running whitewater that's difficult to scout. You know, and so you're reacting in the moment. It's a there is a, an element of danger. If you flip, that water is ice cold. You don't know exactly what's downstream. You could lose all your gear. Hopefully your radio works, but you could lose that too. And you could be severely screwed. So that's not actually the place to learn to paddle. Just like if, God help me, I get in a, you know, I walk, uh, we wrap up this podcast, I walk outside to my car and I get jumped and I fight for my life. That's not the time to learn how to fight. The time to learn how to fight is not when you're in fights. You're trying to find a safe 
sort of play environment where you can test it out and develop the skills and develop the reflexes and develop the timing, even though you can make an argument, yes, well, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you don't include eye gouging and groin biting, and that's be the reality in a fight, is I would gouge your eyes and bite your groin. Well, you're also not going to be training very long, and you're not going to have very many training partners, and you'll get way less training than if you and I are rolling around. Oh, man, Ian got the mounting at me again. I'll try and escape from the mount. Oh, look, I got out. Oh, what he's using a butterfly guard pass on me. I'll use this guard pass. Um, now, if I'm lucky enough to got to the side, I'll try and take your back. By playing in that safe environment, we can then train ourselves to have the base of reaction times and or base of reactions and sensitivities and uh, problem-solving abilities that we could then use in the dangerous situation. Similarly, my paddling skills for the Fla Luisa and the other rivers weren't built up entirely in those dangerous situations. I was out, you know, taking a plastic boat with friends and we're wearing dry suits and we're wearing helmets and we're screwing around in rapids that we would never run in, in, you know, quote, a real trip because it's, it's pretty difficult. So then we're developing our timing and our technique there. Then you can take those skills and transplant them to a more dangerous environment. So I, I think that that idea of developing the skills you need for the big event, whether that's you know one of the few street fights that I hope you're in ever in your life, or doing a great big canoe trip up north, or I don't know, a catamaran sailing your catamaran down to the azores uh hopefully you've developed those skills in a safer environment or a fun environment where you can play a little bit where the consequences of failure are minimized because that allows you to push the limits and it's, it's it's like that old quote about how to make toast you do it till it you know till it burns and then 30 seconds less you need to be able to play in an environment where the cost of failure is reasonably minimal and then you'll develop the skills that you can then, with slight modifications, deploy in a real situation. I, I love that because I actually have a question that was saying, you know, do you see a likeness to your trip to jiu-jitsu? The problem solving, the challenging and fluid changing environment, the dangers of the water and wildlife, being like the dangers of getting choked out, the isolation, being like your own development, you know, the danger side of it linked to like your job and stuff and I think you just put that very, like, very articulate and very kind of beautifully put that it's, you know, it's, we look at these sort of things as amazing and life-changing and to you they're just events in your life and, you know, like, we think that we have, we should be doing all these things now where, like you're saying, these are kind of like 10 years in the making and it's i mean what would you i know we're coming up to our time limit just now but what would you want people to remember you know because we've got to go on and go into proper detail about everything mm -hmm. and i find you such an interesting guy you've made my jiu-jitsu like a thousand times better no you well, so much you know i've been a subscriber for years i couldn't i don't think i could i found a better coach at the start you know you really helped me out and your there your series um is on my phone about like your submissions with the Brandon Millens. I've looked at your different you know your different guides on the fundamentals. 
and it, every time I watch it, even now that I'm like a quite high up blue belt, I can go back and find out something else. I can see them on different levels. You know, well, that's what, the thing. It's it's never. I mean, when I get my black belt, then I'll know everything. Uh, bullshit. I mean, <laughs> it really isn't like that, especially in a live martial art where things are continuously changing and where the, the art is continually evolving. Like maybe you could know everything if you're doing some ancient form of Japanese swordsmanship where you, you've got to learn the katas better. Uh, maybe. I, I'm sure the jiu-jitsu people would disagree or the, the traditionalists would disagree that you're always learning and refining. But at a gross level, next year there'll be techniques that don't exist this year or that aren't well known this year you, you better have at least kept track of what's going on so that, that can be a little bit intimidating. what would i leave people with well i mean the pithy statement is do jiu-jitsu um <laughs> it, uh, but I, i'd say at a more fundamental level is find something that challenges you and you know yes i would prefer for it to be brazilian jiu-jitsu but it doesn't really matter it could be trail running it could be um, trying to become the very best grower of roses that you can be. It could be going deep into, I don't know, raising honeybees. I don't really care. Like it, it, it's, I think it's very important that somebody had, people have physical outlets because so many of us lead sedentary lives now. So in that sense, jiu-jitsu would be better than raising honeybees. So ideally... Raising honeybees and working on your 10K time, or raising honeybees and deadlifting. Those, those. But find something that challenges you. I think we are physical beings. We have, we've evolved over, well, millions of, billions of years, but um, human beings have been around for a couple hundred thousand years as anatomically modern human beings. Most of that time we've been out doing things in our body, and now most of us sit behind a screen for huge parts of the day, except for the parts of the day when we're driving our cars or sitting on the train. Uh, I think to feel alive, you need to find a way to challenge yourself physically. So go and try out a CrossFit gym, go and do a jiu-jitsu class. And people are going to say, well, I don't know what CrossFit gym to try, or I don't know what jiu-jitsu class to try. Well, remember what I said, that it's much better to go and taste something than it is to spend endless time analyzing and researching. I mean, yes, you should analyze and research too, but if there are four CrossFit gyms in, a, or in your neighborhood, go and try them all out. The, the value of experiencing that firsthand for an hour and seeing, oh, this instructor's a real jerk. Oh, everyone here seemed really nice. Or going and trying each of the five martial art gyms within, I don't know, a 20 minute radius of your house or half hour radius of your house, you'll you'll know much more at the end of that process than you would ever learn by looking at every single Yelp review and every single Google review and you know Googling what's better Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or Hungar Kung Fu. Right? Somebody will have pontificated about that, but they have an agenda. Go and experience it. Go and feel it, and then make your decision. So find something physical to do, even if you're, especially if your job is mostly sitting in front of a screen or driving a driving a computer. Yeah, it's almost like 
you know, go and get an experience, go and do something and actually enjoy life and do something in life rather than stagnate in front of a screen. Everybody, like I stagnate in front of a screen too, right? Like how did I build grapplers? I sat in front of a screen typing away at two o'clock in the morning to write an article, to edit a video. Um, there, I'm not saying yeah, but you're working, you're working towards a passion though as well. It, it is, but you got to just balance it, right? You're, we are, um, we have mental and physical components. And if you want a spiritual component, although I would, um, you know, whether, whether you combine that with the mental component, it's up to you, but you got to feed all those different areas of yourself. So I, I think most of the people listening to this know that they should be doing something physical. Hopefully most of them are. And, uh, and that's great. Um, and then, you know, take yourself to the next level mentally as well, right? Even if your job is, I don't know, working in a parking garage, right? You're just sitting there watching cars go in and out all day long. Awesome. First, what can you do to improve that? What can you do to work towards that perfect job? And you've got time, right? You've got time. You, you can work. You could either just spend that entire time surfing Instagram or you, if you're interested in, it's the second time I've used beekeeping as an example. If you read for an hour a day on beekeeping and then when you go home in the evening, you tend to your hives. I guess that's what beekeepers do. By the end of that year, you'll know more about beekeeping than 99.99% of people in society, and you'll be an expert. And then, you know, maybe you can work towards doing that full-time instead of working in the parking lot. But you're using that time sitting there in the parking lot, working towards whatever it is that you want to achieve. And do you think, uh, if you look at what bees are capable of doing and how we need them for our whole ecosystem, pretty much... Yeah, you know, it's it's quite yeah. impressive that you picked that. <laughs> it was just uh, I just had a long debate about uh, the effect of glycophosphate uh, pesticides with a farmer, and so that's just fresh in my mind. He uh, he acknowledges that bee populations are crashing, but denies that the glycophosphate um, pesticides have anything to do with it. So I need to go do more research in my spare time, which I have very little of. <laughs> I mean that that's why I generally consider you like one of the most interesting people in jiu-jitsu you know you, you go into a deeper level about everything and you know as we find out more about you with the trip with the transplant with the the whole side of things I can I can understand that the love of your fans and the interest and you know I could go on for hours about the different topics so we, we've definitely got to do this again well, I mean well, it's been an absolute honour Let's pick a topic next time and we'll try to keep me from wandering down a <laughs> rabbit hole. And that way, if people are not interested in jujitsu, they cannot listen to it. If they're not interested in, uh, you know, extreme medical procedures and ripping an organ out of one human being and jamming it into somebody else and the weird physiological <laughs> things that happen, they cannot listen to it. And if they're not interested in, uh, you know, polar bears and caribou in the Arctic, then they cannot listen to that either. If we, this has uh, been a great get-to-know-you episode, and um, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, so uh, it's uh, it's great to reach out and connect. I mean, that's what scared me, was how to make this general when there was, like, every topic was <laughs> something I was so deeply interested in. Well, until we can get that going again, 
what um, ways can people keep in touch? How can they, you know, like find your instructionals, connect with you in social media, find your website, that sort of thing? Yeah. Well, if I if they can't find me with Google, then I'm not doing my job. But I'll give them a head start. Uh, Grapplers.com is the main hub site. That's obviously mostly devoted to uh, jiu-jitsu and martial arts training and MMA training uh, in general. So grapplearts.com. I am on Instagram, uh, Stefan underscore Kesting. I do have a podcast. If people search for the Strenuous Life podcast, they'll find it. Mostly we focus on jiu-jitsu, but I've, I've gone on some pretty major tangents. And like you, uh, if there's somebody interesting, I'll talk to them if I think it'd be interesting for the people who listen. Um, what else? If they're interested more in that Arctic trip I did, if they go to grapplearts.com slash solo, they'll find an article. That's a work in progress. It, it's not um, edited up as nicely as I would like because it's basically a bunch of transcribed posts from the field. So I'm still working on that. But there, you, know, you see some photos and uh, get the gist of some of the the writing that I did while I was out there. I mean, grapplearts.com slash solo. I think that's mostly it. Uh, I've got apps on the App Store and the Android, uh, the Google Play Store that take you through various jiu-jitsu techniques. And I mean, I think you're underselling just how good they are. They, um, I would say that basically you like made me like, get my tabs and my white belt quicker oh. than I was ever going to. I was lost in a sea of just not nonsense you know i didn't know where i was going or hanging your instructionals broke them down you kind of made even somebody that was six foot three fat out of control didn't know what they were doing you made me understand jiu-jitsu technique concepts but you know your your instructionals your apps are phenomenal and if you're not using them i think people are really like cutting their leg off mm. you know it's well, I'm, you, I'm, your stuff is phenomenal. I'm glad that they helped. Uh, I mean, my basic premise is I try to produce stuff that I would have found useful or that I do find useful in real time. And I think there's just so much information out there that context becomes more important than the information itself. Because if you and I went on YouTube and we were training together, we could find a, we could find a new technique on YouTube, watch it, I could do it twice, you could do it twice, we could find another video on YouTube, I could do the technique twice, you could do it twice, and we could pretty much continue forever because people are always adding new stuff. Would that make us any better at jiu-jitsu? Not really, because we would just have a, we, first of all, we would never remember anything because it's just a bunch of random scattered techniques. And two, we wouldn't have a larger context within which to put those techniques. Like, hey, here's something cool, here's another cool thing. Right. Only uh, extremely ADHD people would would uh, benefit by that, and probably not even then. So, yeah, I think the context is important. Well, if people want the apps, uh, the one that's mostly free is the Roadmap for BJJ apps. That's grapplearts.com slash roadmap. And that kind of gives you the bigger picture of how the positions of jiu-jitsu tie together and why one position is better than the other and what your goal should be in every position. If you're 
in top mount, what should your goals be? If you're on the bottom of side mount, you've got the guy in your guard, what should your goals be? How are you going to accomplish that? And then there's the grapplers.com slash master app, which took a ton of development time because there's just so much. There's a there's more than 500 free minutes of instruction there. And then if people want to get extra stuff, they can. And that is that app took a ton of time and money uh, and research and development to to create. So we're still working on improving that. But yeah, let's absolutely do this again, and we'll. I, I promise, and you'll promise, that we'll specialize in a topic and mostly stick to that for at least um, 65, 70% of the, uh, the episode. I mean, it generally has been a true honor to have you on. This is, you were one of the people that I first wrote down that I wanted to have on because oh. you personify what the site's about. People who are living life on another level, who are, you know, helping others, inspiring others, and they're like superstars in their chosen field but so now you just need to get know, the, elon musk on the show and then you'll you'll be complete well yeah i don't have any joints for him unfortunately <laughs> well i was also I, go ahead i mean i was always interested did the william gard interview have anything to do with your trip no i had pretty much had that planned he started will gad is a really crazy high level ice climber and he started giving, and we were talking about one of my distant plans, which was crossing Greenland. And he started giving me the gears about, uh, you know, well, if it really is, if it really is a goal of yours, and you should be doing it, you should be doing it, you should be doing it. Why are you delaying? And part of the answer was, well, I had this other trip that I was planning. So the the I'll say what the Will Gad interview, the thing that that helped me with the most, preparing for a big climb. And I was expecting and wanting at some level an answer like, well, first I start doing pull-ups and then I'll start doing fingerboard training and then I'll do pull-ups wearing, you know, with an ice axe and then I'll add 10 pounds to a backpack. And his answer was essentially like, look, logistics for a big climb, logistics are first, second, third, and fourth. Training for it physically, that comes, that's way down the line. That's way down the line. That's way down the road. The logistics are really where it's at. So then in getting ready for my own uh, solo celebration of not dying trip this last summer, that was a really useful thing to keep in mind because the logistics were so unbelievably complicated and that my time was not at all sufficient that I was, I did the right amount of logistics. I did not do the right amount of, or as much physical preparation as I would have liked. But the logistics were more important because your body can toughen up as you're paddling day after day, but if you don't have, you know, the, I don't know, if your satellite radio doesn't work, sorry, if your satellite phone doesn't work, if your tent repair kit doesn't exist, if you don't have um, the right tool to repair your boat, you're screwed, right? You can improvise to a certain extent, but the logistics are way more important than the physical preparation, although physical preparation is also important. So that really that that was a nugget that Will Gad dropped that really helped me with uh, feeling better about how I was allocating time to get ready for that. Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. 
It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.